Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. To Adam, welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today. Nearly live, we are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we are actually, though, playing with the space-time continuum because we are recording this while I'm in Cambridge. But this is airing when I'm not in Cambridge and I'm in China, and our guest is off doing a whole bunch of other things, having just been awarded the Anne Saddlemeyer Award for Best Book in Canadian Theatre by the Canadian Association for Theatre Research at Congress, and it is Nicole Nolette. Welcome. Thank you. So, you just won this award. Well, not really, but when we're airing this, you just won this award. So, congratulations. Thank you. So, we obviously can't talk about what it felt like to go up and get the award, but you just got the email saying that you got the award. And I should say, it's for for your book, which came out last year, which is entitled Jouer la traduction, théâtre et hétero-linguisme au Canada francophone. Mm -hmm. So, just... Did you know you were nominated, and what was the process like uh, going through that? Yes, I knew I was nominated. I have a colleague uh, whom I work with uh, at the Department of Theatre at the University of Ottawa who told me that I was uh, nominated. And this is an award uh, for books that are published this year in Canadian theatre. And so I'm I'm a member of several other committees uh, for prizes and awards with the Canadian Association for Theatre Research, and uh, but not this one. And this one, uh, uh, I'm really happy to receive this prize and to know that this is an award that's given to books that are published either in French or in English. And I think that is part of the reach of my book as well to talk about what happens in Canada in French and in English in theatre. Uh, you did do a job talk recently for us. In that job talk, you talked about translation and the the meaning of translation, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But in general, if you had to sort of summarize your book, how would you do that? Like, what would you say it's about? What's the main focus? My book is about bilingual theater in Canada, especially as it comes from francophone theaters in Western Canada, Ontario, and Acadie. And I'm really interested in the ways that this uh, bilingual theater is translated and in the ways in which it circulates to the major theatre centres in Canada, in French and in English, so how it circulates to Montreal and incorporates more French, and how it circulates to Toronto and incorporates more English. And in each of these cases, I'm interested in the ways in which we choose to translate these plays, usually for the stage. Uh, So sometimes we include surtitles, so screens above the stage, and sometimes we include uh, characters, new characters that can act then as translators in the plays. So those, in those cases, the original characters would still speak in whatever the language the play was written in, and then you'd still have the secondary characters. That yes. sounds like it would add a lot of time to a, a production. It could, or perhaps you have this character doing something that looks like translation already, mm. and you add on to the role of this uh, this character. Right. Right, and there was actually uh, there was a revival of Spring Awakening in New York in the fall, and I think it went into January, that they had deaf actors 
playing the part or playing some of the parts and then they had people giving the voices to the deaf actors who were and everyone even the actors who spoke for themselves were doing sign language mm-hmm. so everything was translated to American sign language uh, which and it was this really interesting process where they had to make sure the sign language fit what they were saying and that was a challenge and, and in certain cases they wanted to use old sign styles sort of late 19th century styles of signing and it really shed delight to me how mm-hmm. one sign language is a, an evolving language just like any spoken language but also the challenges in translating things and for you in studying these things how much of what you do is focusing on the words themselves and the way in which people translate because I know that's part of what you do and part of what you teach versus say, staging and performance and those sorts of things. It's interesting that you bring up the case study of deaf culture and translation for the stage with deaf culture, because I think a lot of what has uh, has brought on a new discussion in translation studies, and especially translation studies as they connect to theater studies, is, um, is deaf culture and deaf language interpreters. Uh, there are um, there in the UK. It, there is a law that says that um, deaf language interpreters should be part of every performance, um, every production, and for a few performances per production. And this has brought on a whole new subject that for research mm. and. Uh, And so just thinking about how we translate for the stage because you have someone else on stage and then how and then very quickly it became a question of how you can play with this and how you can stage Mm -hmm. this interpreter into the production. And right, because you couldn't have an interpreter off to the side of the stage because if someone's watching the interpreter, they wouldn't then see what. What else is going on? They they might it might be close to the stage or but it might. It might also inspire um, directors to mm. do something else with these uh, these people because people are going to be watching them, and I think the lesson is that people are going to be watching these interpreters no matter no matter if they're deaf or not, mm. and and so that has a big impact on uh, the performance and how mm. spectators receive the performance as well. Mm. So, do you think really it's a case of? sort of the visual element really is the dominant force in theater and that the the words and the language, I, I don't want to say are secondary, but sort of the main concern, even for a translated piece, is still how it's staged. And that's the, the primary thing because that's how people are really going to consume it. And, and it's the visual elements more so than maybe if in the translation something gets lost. What helped me think through both of these things, the language and uh, the performance, was the concept of play and how we could connect language play to performance play and theater play. And I was really interested in this because translation hasn't really been thought of as play before. Mm-hmm. It It is often thought of as a loss. Um, and I was interested in how translators and theater artists would think of translation as play and as as something to pun with mm. and we have examples of shakespeare using bilingualism and multilingualism to to make puns and and that that also became comic mo- moments in uh, in performances and so i think i i don't think it's an either or situation i think that the play within language 
and within languages, it connects to the theater and performance play. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point because, say, my brother and I go to Just for Laughs in Montreal every year, and there's always promotions and stuff to go to see francophone comedians. And I've never gone to one because my command of the French language, such that it exists, isn't sophisticated enough to get the jokes. Right, my understanding of French is a very clinical understanding mm-hmm. and the way it's been put to me when I've taken the government bilingualism test is that I'm functional in French, right? In a business environment, I can be functional, but there's no way I can understand sort of the sophisticated way in which a comedian would use the language to make the jokes. So it's interesting that you, you would put it in that sense because it, even if you just translated a joke, like literally put it in Google Translate, it wouldn't make any sense in English. The same way that an English pun-type joke doesn't make sense if you literally translate it into French. So that's kind of fun that you would think about it in this playful way because language is so much more than just the words on the page. Like It's the meaning that comes from it and trying to understand how that works. And for you as someone who tries to teach translation as well, in addition to your theater stuff, how do you situate the challenge of translation versus the the meaning that that comes from language i don't know if that question makes yeah, sense yeah i don't i don't i'm not sure that i have a super brilliant answer for that except to say that there has been a move recently in in second language teaching and in translation teaching to come up with playful pedagogies mm-hmm. and also to come up with examples of uh, lived culture as uh, as ways to learn language and to learn translation uh, there's um, there's an initiative uh, across Canada across Canadian schools of translation that's called les jeux de la traduction uh, where they it's basically an olympic style uh, competition to translate these uh, these very different genres of of literature and of of songs and of very pragmatic texts as well so that brings up um, a component of play in a in the sense of competition, I guess. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point because because play is off like the word play mm-hmm. like is sort of seen as not serious, right? But this is these are serious things that you're dealing with, and it, it's interesting because you say as as people often say like I'm oh I'm playing around with this article or something, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it denotes this this. You're dealing with a serious thing and something you take seriously, but to say that, oh, I'm playing around with it mm-hmm. makes it sound not serious, even though it's serious. And it's, so it's interesting, that dynamic, even just that word choice of play is, is super meaningful. Yes, and for me, the the choice to talk about play was first grounded in the corpus of texts and performances that I study. Because I study a corpus of bilingual plays that have often been interpreted as the sign of the assimilation of these communities and so to something very tragic. I feel like it wasn't it wasn't as much seen how much uh, how much punning there were there was in this in these performances and uh, I thought that was something that really needed to be uh, looked at more specifically Mm. and how for how for example these these issues that are very important, like uh, how minorities can 
deal with language insecurity. Because one of the things you talk about in yes. in or one of your case studies yes. is uh, Acadia and Acadian language. Mm-hmm. And one of the case studies you talk about that I remember specifically from your job talk, mm-hmm. there, there was a production and one of the reviews, I believe it was one of the reviews, said nobody outside mm-hmm. of like what, like a 50 mile radius of, was it Halifax? Moncton. Uh, excuse me, of Moncton yeah. would be able to understand any of this. And it's it, because the production was written with this Acadian, would it be fair to say an Acadian language or more of an Acadian dialect? Or, or yeah. Vernacular, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that really speaks to a, a, a vulnerability of that language. And so, how do you situate, like, as you say, like, there are minority groups across the country that struggle with mm-hmm. preserving language in the mm-hmm. face of a, a more nationalized environment culturally at least so for you when you study these types of plays particularly that that acadian production you know how how much of language as we understand it in canada is really a francophone anglophone thing versus really we're a multilingual country where but without a lot of widespread recognition for those languages that aren't as mean or aren't as widespread you mean like dialects of French and dialects of English, or do you mean other languages as well? Well, well, that, I guess that's the question. Then would yeah. would Acadian be considered a different language? Like if people who are outside of this Moncton bubble, mm-hmm. like if that review is true, that people outside of that won't understand it, could we not then classify Acadian as a separate language? I think the way that uh, linguists and social linguists have thought about Shiak, which is the the dialect that we're talking about, is as a very structured form of code switching and something that has its own grammar though still it's still not a language Uh, but I do think that questions of comprehension or understanding these plays doesn't necessarily have to do only with language question of understanding a play is also a question of understanding artistic uh, means of production and understanding Certain cultural references, yes, but certain aesthetic conventions as well. So let's talk about the case study then, yeah. um, particularly. So, so the the language that is used, you study the 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 translation or the 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 way in which this production was presented for an Acadian audience. Mm-hmm. So, how would that differ, or how did that differ in this case from how it would have been produced for an audience in in Montreal? I think. Sadly, you saw my my two counterexamples, mm-hmm. the two examples of plays where translation didn't work for these productions. Yeah. I have other examples of this uh, this performance in Ottawa, though that is uh, that's called L'homme visible, the Invisible Man by Théâtre La Vieille Set, and that production is an adaptation of a poetic narrative. And that was staged by Théâtre Lavier de Set in Ottawa in around 2004-2005. And this was a pretty hugely successful performance in Ottawa, and it toured around Canada. And it stopped in Toronto, uh, where it didn't really need more translation because it already had one uh, one actor speaking French mostly and one actor mostly speaking English. And mm-hmm. so... It was already understood as having a translation convention, I mm-hmm. guess. Right. But but it never got to um, huge success in Montreal, 
What did make the production successful in Montreal was when the play or the this adaptation of the poetic narrative was put on by Theatre Kingston, uh, by uh, so by uh, an Anglophone institution, and that but that also hired Anglo Montrealers, mm. who then who produced it, uh, who who staged it in Kingston, where there were these interesting effects of reception. And then brought it to Montreal, where it really resonated with uh, Anglo Montrealers. Hmm. And so there's there are these interesting connections that happen with these productions as they as they travel and as they meet different audiences. I guess they connect with people with different linguistic capacities in very interesting ways. And how much does that have to do with the plot, or is it purely plot driven? the way these things would be received, or does it have something to do with the the nature of the translation? What I was interested in, in this case, for their reception was the form uh, that translation took in these uh, production and the proportion of French and English and how that changed for these different audiences. So that's what I was looking for in the reception, and that is often what was most most commented on mm. in uh, the critiques of these performances. And so you would have this uh, this student critic in uh, Kingston commenting through about half of his review about his own linguistic capacities and how that meant that he understood this from the performance. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps it does have a, uh, something to do with the plot of the... Um, of the performance, but what I was really interested in was how how it was received, and also how the production really tried to elicit some kinds of um, misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. How it would refuse certain parts of the performance to uh, audience members who didn't share the bilingualism of the performance. Right. So, so there's two things that come out of that that I, that I want to ask about. So I'll start with the audience reception part because one of the things that I struggle a lot with in studying radio from the 30s and just pop culture in general, it's very difficult to get a sense of audience response. Uh, it, it's things like ticket sales or formal critiques or now in that you can see you know, how many hits something gets on Spotify or YouTube or whatever. You can get a sense of how people are feeling about it. But it, it's really hard on an individual level Because there's no way you can go and interview everybody and say, what yeah. did you think, right? So for you, what is that? What is the methodology for reception? And how do you try to gauge how audiences are reacting to, to these pieces? I would be interested in doing um, a sociology of performance. which would involve survey methods and, and actually... But it would involve also planning more in advance, right. being there before the performances and handing out surveys and then picking them up at the end of the performance. I was more interested in uh, historical performances from the 70s to 2015. And so there was no way I could go back to no, yeah. 1971 yeah. to right. hand out surveys. So what And I even if you found somebody who was in that show... yeah. And it's, I, it's it's 35 years ago. There's no way you could get it real necessarily an accurate reflection mm -hmm. of how they felt at the time. Yeah, but I could find um, reviews and critiques in uh, newspapers and on blogs and in, um, in theatrical journals. So there were some pieces left over from what the audience thought. I did uh, a few interviews as well. I... 
And in these cases, even the material for the texts of the performances was hard to find. I mm. had to um, to dig up uh, some some strange sources and uh, and find some documents that were never published uh, to to do this uh, this sort of research. Mm. And then, so the second part of that would be from the production side, because yeah. I know you interviewed a lot of playwrights and, mm-hmm. and production folks as part of this process and. You know, it's one thing for the audience to receive things in one way and to have a, a reaction to anything, like let alone the, the translation aspect of things. And, and one of the things that I've learned through doing not only this, but you know, anything in, that you put out for public consumption is that sometimes, if not oftentimes, what you think people will take from something or, or the meaning that you think they'll take from it is not what they take. And they... they, they take something else from it or put a different meaning on it that you don't expect. And, and sometimes that's negative, but oftentimes that's really exciting to see how people are, are consuming things in, in a different way. So for, for you in these interviews with these production people, are they conscious of that or do they really have a specific message that they want to pass along or are they just interested in telling a story? Like what, what, are, what is their perspective and how do they approach these questions. There's this question of the interview with uh, the artist, but one of the other forms of publicity for theater theater artists to to um, transmit their intention is to, through the the playbill or the theater program, right. and uh, that is also one of the ways that you can sort of try to get to what. And and for regular spectators as well, like what am I supposed to get from this play? I, I'll open this playbill and see what the director is telling me. Mm-hmm. Wh- what should I feel about this? And, and that will direct your experience of the show, I right. believe. Right. Uh, and these are objects that will often be left over from performances, even if there is very little mm-hmm. left. The, this is one of the things that you right. can find. Uh, and so that's one of the ways that I tried to get to intention. Mm-hmm. Um my my research on reception was on two levels. Uh, I was looking for the implicit spectator that of the production, so digging into the performances and how they would make certain certain spectators privileged spectators of the performance, and how translation would modify these uh, these relationships to spectators. Mm-hmm. On the second level, I was also interested in actual reception, and that is where the blogs and the theater reviews and all of that came in. Mm-hmm. And ticket sales, and like, because I'm sure in some cases you'd be able to have those numbers as the commercially if something was successful. Not, I mean, I'm sure not in all of them, but in some cases, I'm sure there's some info on that. In some of them, I think that gets to a sociology of performance more right. so than a, than to a perspective that's that's around reception right right uh but i'm curious when you talk to writers producers what do they say about these 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 issues and what what is their priority or or what sort of stuff do they tell you when when you interview them i think what they're the most concerned about is circulation and how to how to get beyond their very small um, theaters because these are the the francophone theaters in Canada have a mandate to create to make new creations as well 
And so they worked with these local playwrights. And uh, and then after doing a few of these creations, uh, the playwrights want to see their work circulated as well. Um, but using these... Um, these vernaculars or these dialects or these forms of bilingualism for them means that they'll often be misunderstood or to be be taken as uh, exotic mm. outside of their 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 small um, smaller regional uh, theaters. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because, as you say, like a lot of these things happen at a, a regional mm-hmm. level, and you know the the one case study you mentioned that it went really across the country and taking that to different audiences and the challenge associated with that. And I haven't seen a lot of theater outside of Ottawa uh, in Canada or Toronto, I guess, but this, mostly the stuff that I've seen in Toronto has, has been um, Mervish stuff, right? So sort of big, more lavish productions, not, not so much the local, small local theater, particularly not local theater that is, has been written by a local artist. Like that's something that is completely foreign to me uh, in in the Canadian setting so for you in, in finding these pieces finding these artists who are, who are writing these things it's almost a reg- a series of regional studies right like and and as opposed to a full national study because they don't or it strikes me that they're operating locally and regionally and they're while there is a national community, the productions themselves don't necessarily get national attention, national coverage. And does that tell us anything about the nature of the theatrical uh, community in, in Canada um, or the, the available audience for theater? It certainly says something about the nature of English uh, mm. theater in Canada, that there's no... And I think that's something that uh, theater scholars, Canadian theater scholars, sort of gave up on was the idea of national theater, and then moved on to the idea of regional theater. And that's what you see in many Canadian cities are the the establishment of these regional theaters that will produce regional theater, mm-hmm. as opposed to Canadian theater. Right. Though there are anthologies of Canadian theater, and and so it has been centralized, I guess, for scholarly and and under scholarly <laughs> <laughs> undergraduate <laughs> consumption. <laughs> um, what I'd say about French theater in Canada uh, is that it's mostly centered around Quebec and mostly centered in Montreal. Mm-hmm. The rest between uh, Montreal and Quebec, Montreal and Quebec are the Quebec City are the um, the main centers for theater in French, and then the the regions of Quebec, the province, uh, are also as um, probably produce as little theater in French as other Canadian um, cities. Mm -hmm. And is the situation then a lot of these productions? these francophone productions that are created in Quebec would then go to other places across the country and, and serve francophone communities around the country as opposed to francophone artists in other parts of the country creating the material locally and then taking it to Quebec, right? It's, it's more of an export culture than an import culture. Quebec's, you mean? Yeah, like, the, yes. so, so, like so if, we, if yeah. we're saying that the francophone yeah. Yeah. theater community is really centralized... Yeah. Most of the material that gets 
seen outside of Quebec mm-hmm. in French has been exported from Quebec, and it's not really the case that Montreal theaters are necessarily importing as much francophone material as has been exported. Mm-hmm. One of the first um, mandates of francophone theaters in Canada is to create theater locally, right. and that's why they get funding, basically. Right. Uh, but it is a buyer's market as well, and um, the direct artistic directors of these theaters will go to Montreal to shop around and find sometimes half of their their programming will be from Quebec mm-hmm. and uh, and then have a few local productions and sometimes it depends on whether they're they're fully professional theaters or whether they're professional and community theaters they might have a community play as well mm-hmm. uh, whereas um, the circulation of these productions to Quebec uh, city and to Montreal is uh, is a lot lesser than the other way around. But that is what was interesting to me because they circulate so little that it's interesting to see how they do circulate right. when they do circulate as counterexamples or as mm-hmm. uh, as special cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, more sort of the exception as opposed to the rule. Yes. Um, so I guess, you know, the question that to me sort of naturally comes out of this is that, you know, what is francophone theater in Canada then if it is so so centralized and is it you know we talked earlier about how there are minority linguistic communities across the country that struggle to maintain the the language and is the the perhaps centralization of francophone theater in Montreal and Quebec a symptom of that that issue that perhaps the, the Francophone theaters across the country might be part of that struggle to maintain the language. I would say that Francophone theater in Canada is certainly not national. Mm. Uh, it is, and it does not have nationalizing ambitions. When Quebec identity first uh, emerged through the Quiet Revolution, it did cause a fragmentation of the old French-Canadian identity, which then made made these uh, other identities possible, like Franco-Ontarian and Franco-Manitoban, Franco-Albertan, yep. whereas the Acadian were always a national entity to begin with. And so there are now many different national or pseudo-national projects within, uh, within Canada, which has an impact on how theater gets funding, yeah. I would say, and how it circulates. And um, and the the relationship to, of Quebec to what used to be French Canada certainly does play on uh, the um, on the circulation of plays in Canada mm-hmm. and plays on the perception theater as professional or non professional when it applies to when the judgment is made from Quebec to other francophone theaters in Canada. I would say so that some of these other ones would be considered amateur. And or, or maybe they are actually in practice amateur and therefore not as highly regarded. And it becomes a judgment of aesthetics as right. well. Yeah. So that they, they don't meet a certain standard. Yes. And therefore are not as reflective of whatever mm-hmm. as some stuff that's been made in Quebec professionally. Yes. Now, one of the things that, that I often wonder about Canada, and I've said this on the show before, that that. For as much as we like to talk about being a bilingual country, I don't think we are. And I think 
the policies that we have in place don't foster bilingualism. They foster two sets at the national level, two sets of unilingual people. That there isn't enough conversation between the the languages. And the anecdotal example I use is the buses in Ottawa. They give you first in in English and then in French. Even when it's you're, if you're at Bank and Slater Street, it says Bank and Slater, Bank A Slater. To me, that's not bilingual. That's two unilingual announcements. And at the University of Ottawa, there were situations where, with Francophone colleagues, they would speak to me in French, I would speak to them in English, and we could have a perfectly fine conversation that way. To me, that's bilingual. Now, you can feel free to tell me that I'm completely wrong about that. But I also wonder if a lot of these productions are being made in isolation, these regional ones, these amateur ones, then isn't there an added priority to create bilingual theater and using these translation methods that you're studying to really promote a bilingual country or a bilingual culture as opposed to translating directly French to English or English to French. Like this idea of having both on the stage at once and sort of that good, was it bon cop, bad cop idea really interests me as a way to promote bilingualism. And I just wonder for you, just in not only the productions that you've studied, but this notion of translating, is this a way that we can promote what at least I would consider a true bilingual culture? I think I'd start by saying that the official languages um, law, and I don't have the the title in English, but there is an official title, was always meant to create separate unilingualisms. And in that sense, to keep Quebec, uh, people in Quebec speaking French and uh, people from elsewhere speaking English. And so it's not a coincidence that you find that the way bilingualism works in Canada is through parallel monolingualisms, essentially. In the case studies that I that I look at in my book, there's very little relation to official policies of bilingualism. That's not what it what these plays talk about. These right. plays talk about lived experiences of bilingualism mm-hmm. uh, for francophone minorities who mostly live in English and in French uh, on a regular basis. There is so there is a mimetic effect uh, of these plays as they they construct realism basically. There is also the um, bilingualism as a as a th- theatrical experiment. So ways to explore what you can do on stage with these two languages and also with the two styles of acting and of theater that come from these two language traditions in Canada. So I'd say that that is more important than reflecting on Canadian policies mm. and Canada itself, I believe. Mm. Though that is another project that I'm starting to do now on um, Canadian official politics of bilingualism and how they are promoted by some theater art- artists. Though that, I would say, is really not the most popular option among <laughs> artists. <laughs> That they would rather write in one language? Well, first of all, I say that theater artists 
will rarely go be promote official but official right, government yeah. policy. Uh, they would rather talk against or critique governance, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, as for the the question of writing plays in one language, that is certainly a a better way to get government funding mm -hmm. um, in Canada, as you have to apply for either the French funding or the English funding. And if yeah. you have too much of a high proportion of the other language, then you're not eligible. Right. Yes. Right. So, so it's a there's an economic factor. Yes. I play to to diminish the amount of bilingual theater in Canada. I'd say. Mm -hmm. So, when you look at a play then that was written, say in French, and then has been translated to English and set in Toronto, is there a consciousness on the part of the audience that this was originally a francophone piece that they're seeing, or is it promoted as such? Is the audience in there just saying, thinking, oh, we're just seeing a show? When things are translated, how does that play out, both on the stage but also in the audience? Toronto and Montreal have a long uh, history of um, of translating each other, and that that has been researched quite extensively as a way to reflect on the language inequalities in Canada. So how people from Ontario mostly, and how people from Quebec translate each other's theater and how these forms of translation are often ethnographic or often uh, exoticizing, or that they, that they make these plays banal and uh, not centered in place. So there is a difference between translating from one language to the other and translating for a, a play that would be in one language or in multiple languages and then adding surtitles. And I think that that's one of the main things that Toronto has done lately, especially the Théâtre Français de Toronto, who has implemented uh, surtitles for certain, certain performances of every one of its productions. Mm -hmm. And that has meant... Uh, That has been meant to attract um, more Anglophone uh, spectators, but also more Francophones that have lost touch with the French language mm. and to make them less shy about coming back into uh, a Francophone community. That has also meant that French theatre in Toronto has been talked about more in English blogs and English newspaper in different ways, and, uh, and that... That, I think, depends on the plot of the productions that have been put on and on uh, whether they were centered on Quebec or on the Francophone experience in Canada and or whether they were, uh, whether it was um, a Molière, for example, in which case theater critics would have very little to say about, uh, about those kinds of things. Right, because if people are writing their lived experience as a, as a linguistic minority... It would be hard for someone who is not a linguistic minority, and that would be an Anglophone person living in Toronto, and who has always lived in Toronto, to really connect to that story, right? Because isn't that a big thing about theater, is that you're trying to connect with the audience, mm -hmm. and when you're writing lived experiences, part of that is that the audience has to be able to relate in some way. Identification is certainly one of the ways to relate to spectators. There are others. And what we've found in a lot of cases when we read liter literature or see theater is that we don't necessarily have a preference for theater that reflects us. There are other mm. forms of um, being a spectator that don't require identification. Mm. And that's why translation exists as well, because 
Translation relies on the assumption that identification isn't the only way to interact with literature or with theater. So with respect to the translations, then who generally is doing them? Are, are they the playwrights themselves or are they turning them over to professional translators? And how much, if that's the case, how much say does the playwright have in the way things are translated? Because the ways in which translation has gone wrong, all you have to do is put something into Google Translate from English to French and then back from French to English and you get a completely different sentence to understand the complexity of translation. So when, when plays are being translated, who's in charge of that process? I think we can talk about two different things here, yeah. uh, one of which is um, having play texts already and uh, having translators translate them into other texts and, and then having a theater produce that translated text. The other one is um, what I'm studying in my book, which is these plays that are often created in these theaters or that are brought into these theaters and that will be surtitled. Like right. um, like one of my Acadian examples was only surtitled when it went to Toronto, to a French theater in Toronto that had surtitles, so Le Théâtre Français de Toronto. And in that case, it is a lot, very often, the first person that is asked to do the surtitle translation is the playwright. Mm. And then the the producer or the the director of the play will will have a say in the the translation. Sometimes, especially in Toronto, it will be a specialist of surtitles mm. because Toronto has an expertise in surtitles because of the opera. Oh. They they have specialists in surtitles right. that uh, also cross over into theater. Hmm. And so just having those resources there would be would be really helpful. And, and these surtitles, because we've, you've talked about the, the dialect issue, would it be specific then for a Toronto audience? And particularly if it's a, if they're being done in, in French, like is there the regional dialects that would cause certain things to change? And therefore would something that is translated for that Toronto audience maybe not be applicable for, say, a Vancouver audience? I would say absolutely. Um, and then the the aims of translation will depend on what the the director of the play uh, requires and what the theater company wants as well, right. and right. and what they ask of the person who's doing the, the translation. Mm-hmm. And have you talked to the the people who have been doing the translations, like some of these professional people, and how do they approach? The piece are, are they working in collaboration a lot with playwrights and the theater that is staging it in the new place, or do they just go off, take the text, and do it and say, "Here's what it is." In my book, I have only one example of someone who's a surtitled professional working on uh, mm-hmm. the translation of the sur- of the text into surtitles, yep. and I didn't get a chance to talk to that person, but I got a chance to talk to the director of the play and the director of the theater who were both dissatisfied with the surtitles that were produced for this show that had that was as you say very dialect intensive and then the the director and the producer decided to edit the uh, the surtitles that were produced by the professional mm. 
Whereas when it is the playwright himself, often himself, because it is often males uh, producing playful bilingual theater, often uh, they will use this playfulness to uh, to do the translation to do the surtitle translation and so you will have a continuum of playfulness from the play or the the original play and and uh, production to the translated uh, so right because in that way the playwright has control through the process or has um has an idea of what the play could be using what he has done before right right so it so it doesn't become this place of contention as you identify with this other case, mm-hmm. where perhaps that would alter some things and, and change maybe the meaning or the intended meaning of what the playwright and the director had in mind for mm-hmm. the production, which, of course, as, as I said, like it's hard when you're producing something to ensure that the audience takes what you want them to take away from it. But the more control you can have in the process, the more likely that is. Yeah, and I'm not sure that that is always the the intent of mm. those people um, because I claiming intent is also a rhetorical device yeah, that's very true uh, but I would say that I argue that that is the point of these performances and uh, and so when the continuum of playfulness and it is continued in the translation then there's something going on that's uh, that's better than what goes on when the, that that Continuum is broken, basically. And just just with this notion of playfulness, too, is this an exclusively francophone phenomenon? Are there cases that exist or that that you study where there are anglophone playwrights who are doing the same thing of, of using this playfulness to create material that would be produced in French as well and sort of bending the line between the languages in the same way? In theater, I would say that there's very little. Mm-hmm. There is, uh, there is though, in uh, novels and poetry and um, humor shows. You were mentioning, men- yeah. mentioning humor shows earlier. I think that uh, Sugar Sammy is a good example of someone who would count as Anglophone or as an Anglo-Montrealer who's, um, who's doing very playful things in uh, his bilingual performances. Mm-hmm. So for you, just in, in general, just the, the nature then of these productions, do you think they will there, there will be more of them and, and there will continue to spring up as... And, and maybe it's just because I'm in an academic setting with people who don't necessarily think like me but kind of think like me, that these sorts of things are a lot of fun and really cool. And, and do you think that we'll see more uh, of this type of approach to theater and to the production of, of, of playful material like this? Or do you, do you think that because just the nature of the theatrical community in Canada, it will stay uh, similar to the way it's been and the way you have studied it? Um, is there a chance for growth, I guess, is, is the question. I think it has been pretty consistent in uh, Franco-Canadian theater to have this uh, bilingualism be part of uh, many local productions. Where I think something has changed recently is in Montreal for the reception of these works and the 
and the interest in these uh, bilingual works um, and the interest in the, these bilingual works from outside of Montreal in order to create bilingual theater in Montreal. Hmm. And I think that's something that's relatively new. In uh, 2012, there was um, a special issue of the uh, the theater journal Jeu, which had the editor's calling for more bilingual theater in Montreal. And that is not a typical gesture of uh, francophones in Montreal. Right. Usually they would be a lot more reticent and the anglophones in Montreal would be calling for more. And in fact, after this uh, this call for more bilingual theater in Montreal from francophones in Jure, the Montreal Fringe Festival, which is an anglophone organization, they decided to make the Fringe Festival completely bilingual as a mm. festival and to have many bilingual theater objects uh, mm. included in it. And so I think that's that's where things are changing the most right. is uh, in the attitude towards the reception of these objects right. in Montreal. Right, and and not to draw too a simplistic a conclusion from that, but does it correspond with a, a resurgence of federalism in Quebec in general as say the bloc has done poorly in the past two federal elections for instance like is there a, a correlation there or or am I drawing too much from that or, or is it like just not related to to that at all just is it the evolution of theater I don't think it's uh, intrinsically related right. to that Uh, and I don't think that the decline in Quebec um, sovereign, this Quebec sovereignty movement necessarily means a rise in federalism. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. I think it is. Uh, it what mostly comes from is a new way of interacting in Montreal itself. Mm. So urban politics more right. so than federal politics. Mm. Uh, and in that sense, I would say that music has been mm. where this has moved the fastest mm -hmm. with the uh, artists from Arcade Fire, for example, working right. with many Quebec uh, music artists right. before and, a lot way before um, theater artists allowed right. themselves to do them right right and, and Montreal is such an interesting yes point, like just a location for these things because you're right, music, theater, comedy, like all like th these things play out. In, in a variety of arenas in that city and it's it's such a fascinating place because of that mm -hmm. um, just all the different groups that you have in Montreal interacting and, and yes Montreal is a fascinating case it but it does tend to be the place that Canadians focus on the most when they right. think of bilingualism and these things happen in a lot of other Canadian cities as right. well and right. that that has been sort of the point of my book as well is to decenter this Canadian perspective on bilingualism. Hmm. Hmm. Thinking and that places like Moncton, for example, or Saskatoon have these right. much more interesting or as in uh, these interactions that are as interesting as the interactions in Montreal. We just don't hear about them as much. Right. That's a great point. The, the, and, and I don't know, maybe that's at least for me an Anglophone thing that at least growing up, it was always when you thought of Quebec, it was Montreal. And everything was sort of so focused on like stuff happens in Montreal that you forget. Like I, maybe this is a, a terrible indictment on either my education or where I grew up. I don't know, but like the first time I heard the term Franco-Ontarian was as an undergraduate student. Like, like I think there was there was a French school in our town, but I didn't know anyone who went to it. So as people like you become 
uh, write more and more about these issues, hopefully you're, you're leading the charge to sort of get us to think about these issues outside of just Montreal, even though Montreal is a super interesting place and, and a cool case study, but it's important to look beyond just Montreal. I think what has also stopped this conversation from from happening between uh, English Canadians and Franco Canadians is um, the fact that a lot of this conversation was happening in French right. and the writing was happening in French. And so there, for people who aren't bilingual, it has been harder to access that conversation. Mm-hmm. Right, because so much of bilingualism too, This I think this goes back to unilingualism, mm-hmm. is that Bilingualism in this country means that francophones learn English. Mm-hmm. Like that's re- ultimately yeah. what it what it means in so many cases. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly anglophones who I know who speak French. I am functional. I am proudly <laughs> functional in French. Um, but certainly, the the vast majority of the time, it's it's francophones learning English. And and you know, I have friends who work in the government who take the French test and all this. But the sense that I get is that the majority of the time, the working language is is in, in English. So that that's another element as to why, one, these conversations would happen in French, and two, if they're all happening in French, why the Anglophone community wouldn't really be, be mm-hmm. part of it. And what the plays I'm studying in this book uh, say, uh, or at least they say to me, and that I, I argue that they say is, um, hey, there's this conversation going on, we're going to include you into part of it, but mm-hmm. we're going to keep a little bit of the conversation to ourselves right. and you can access it perhaps if you put in the work. Right. And right. Uh, and that's like the, the the fascinating dynamic that I was looking at in these performances and that mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting and that could be transferred into translation as well. Mm, right. When yeah. this place circulated. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting dynamic there. Yeah. Sort of like you open open the door just a crack but not all the way. And, yeah. And it's up to you to sort of push the door open mm-hmm. if, if you really want to ask. That's really, that's a really interesting part of it. And, and probably one of the main reasons why this book won the national award. It won, of course, the Anne Saddlemeyer award for best book in Canadian theater. And that was just awarded as we post this. It's about a month away from when you're going to receive it. So super exciting. And again, the book is Jouer la traduction Théâtre et Hétérolinguisme au Canada francophone by Nicole Nolette, our delightful guest today. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.